Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I'm chatting with Matt Goulding, author of Grape Olive Pig, Deep Travels Through Spain's Food Culture. We discuss why he hasn't left Barcelona since his layover there almost a decade ago, 45-course meals at El Bulli, and the charm of local Spanish sayings. The Spaniards have um, more of these sort of idiomatic expressions than any culture that I've ever Heard and there's new ones trotted out all the time. It's like um, when I talk about doing something and leaving something out, my wife would be like, that's like a, it's como un huevo sin sal. It's like an egg without salt. Or como un beso sin bigote. It's like a kiss without a mustache. <laughs> You're like, wait, what does this mean? <laughs> like being kissed by somebody without a mustache and that's the bad thing? Also coming up, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt on the science of the perfect fried chicken our tips for easy potato gnocchi at home. And now it's my interview with food journalist Mark Bittman. His new book is called Dinner for Everyone, 100 Iconic Dishes Made Three Ways. Easy, vegan, or perfect for company. Mark, welcome to uh, Milk Street. (laughs) Great to be here, Chris. Nice to talk with you as always. We've known each other from some time in the 80s, right? Yeah, I would guess 86, 87, something in there. So... You've done a lot of stuff. I mean, someone once described you as the ultimate utility infielder because you've done everything in food. Columnist. I love that. Well, I I, I think it's, I think, I think you're better than that, but that's a pretty good description. New York Times, of course, you've done a bunch of uh, TV stuff. Mm. Uh, You've written 20 books. I think your first book was Fish, right? Wasn't that your first book? Yep, it was. Fish was the first one. Let's talk about your new book, Dinner for Everyone. So you you have three versions of a recipe, bolognese, sort of whatever meat you have on hand, sort of the throw-together easy version. You do a, uh, 
uh, ratatouille, a vegan version of bolognese. And then you do the serious one with veal and pork shoulder. So just explain the concept of the book to me. Yeah. I mean, it is an attempt to say not as much how to cook as what to cook, because I think a lot of people, that is their question is, what do I do? And I guess I should back up a little. The fundamental idea is it's 100 iconic recipes, each done three ways, fast, vegan, and sort of all out, pull out all the stops. So the first version of every recipe is a weeknight version that can be done quickly and easily without much trouble. The second answers the question of what do I do when I want to cook more plant-based meals? And so, you know, a third of these recipes are straight out vegan for people who are looking for ways to include more vegan recipes in their repertoire. And then the third is really going back to where you and I started, actually, which is fancy weekend all-out cooking. I want to make something that's going to blow people's minds, and I don't care how long it's going to take. And so each of these hundred sort of umbrellas or concepts or iconic recipes has all three of those versions. Uh, vegan before six o'clock. Uh, a few years ago, you came out with a book about that. You wanted to tell us about the concept, and do you still adhere to that, or was that a momentary fancy? No, it's actually been 10 years or closer to 12. I started doing that in 2007, and the idea was, for me at the time, was a same kind of thing. How do I get more plant-based meals into my diet? And I'm, I'm a person who only does things if there are rules. I mean, I like breaking rules, but I like making them also. And I, I couldn't really figure out a way to kind of rein my diet in because there were so many opportunities to overeat and to eat rich food and to eat really well-cooked food. And I just wanted to have sort of a simpler, more plant-based approach but not entirely. So I made up this rule, which was that I was going to eat like a maniacal strict vegan between the time I woke up and dinner time, and then I was going to do whatever the hell I wanted to. And I started doing that, and um, lo and behold, I lost weight. My cholesterol numbers went down. My blood sugar numbers went down, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it really worked and and I enjoyed it and I actually have stayed with it. I, I'm not as fanatic or religious about it as I was back then, but for most days I am vegan until six. Yeah. You have a TED talk, what's wrong with what we eat? And you're proselytizing about we eat too much meat, uh, there's factory farming. Uh, we don't treat animals very well. There was how many, 10 billion animals killed a year just in America, I think, for food yeah. you mentioned. And so here's my question. I, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm in the audience watching you going like, is this message going to change my life? It, do, do you think that message works uh, in terms of changing how people eat? Or do you think we need to find a different way to change people's habits? From a personal point of view, for many people, it's easy enough, or it's let's say it's it's practical to change their diets and to say, we do eat too much meat, we do eat too much highly processed food, I'm going to change that. That isn't practical for everyone. And the interests of the food industry are, of course, in getting us to eat the mass-produced food that's basically omnipresent. So the, 
the question really is, how do we change the environment that tempts us all the time to be eating highly processed food, to be eating, it really is 10 billion animals a year, to think we have a, a right or almost, almost a duty to eat meat two or three times a day. What do we do to change that scenario? Because it's not, you know, it's not sustainable. Resources are limited. The amount of stress we can put on the environment is limited. There's, there's got to be a way to make agriculture more sustainable. And you know, as Wendell Berry has famously said, eating is an agricultural act. And it, it, it starts with what we're growing. It starts with what we're producing. And it starts with what people are selling. You, you, know, you can only eat what's out there to eat. Not everybody's going to be growing their own food or be shopping all the time. So in a way, it's a question of availability. How hard is it to transition from being the recipe guy, cookbook guy, to the food politics guy on the op-ed page in the New York Times? It, it was a natural transition for me. I was super passionate about it. I made a case for it. I think I was ready for it, and it worked. So, you know, it's it's kind of the – I think there are two things about my career that I am really proud of and that I am not modest about, and one is how to cook everything, which really – was and is a kind of contemporary standard for basic cookbooks. And the second is being the first person to write seriously about food on the opinion page of a major paper. So those, you know, that was, a. I can't ask for more than that, really. Um, what advice would you give me right now <laughs> that, you can, that you can mention on radio? <laughs> I mean, I you know, I think that your expansion into sort of more international food is really admirable and really terrific. I, I think everybody ought to be talking about where food comes from, how it's grown, and so on. It's just not as simple as it used to be. And um, I mean, it probably wasn't simple then. We just weren't smart enough to see it. But now we can see that that where food comes from, how it's produced how it's sold and so on are really, really important aspects of, of how we eat. And, I, you know, I, I, the more you talk about that, the better. Mark Bittman, um, this is a conversation we should have more frequently. Well, I, I would love that, Chris. It's always fun. That was Mark Bittman. His new book is entitled Dinner for Everyone. Mill Street Radio is available anytime, anywhere as a podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcast. It's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, you're, you look uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Are you ready? I am, Chris. I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, my name's Peter. Hi, Peter. How can we help you? You guys are always advocating for fresh spices, but uh, fresh spices aren't always easy to come by. So I'm just kind of wondering whether I should throw my best before 2015 clove powder out, or what's the best way to deal with old spices, or am I obligated to get new spices every year? Well... If you have spices where you open the bottle, jar, tin, and you don't get a very strong aroma, you should throw Uh them out. And the reason is they don't really cost that much, and the difference between really good cumin and old cumin or whatever cinnamon is night and day. 
So right. you're not saving a lot of money here by keeping your old spices. I don't necessarily subscribe, though, to the theory of spices only last six months. First of all, you don't right. know how long the spices have been in the jar or tin to begin with. And if you open the top and it's very strong, then I would say it's fine. And also color is some, somewhat of an in- indication of how old it is. So if you have a paprika or a cayenne that's like brown, it's not so fresh. Right. Yeah. Would jars work better for preserving things than like the, oh, I don't know, McCormick? And a lot of them come in little tins. You want to have a cool, dark place to store them. Uh, light's not good. And as long as it seals well, that's fine. I mean, the other thing we haven't talked about is not all spices are created equal. So if you get a jar of cumin, for example, or caraway or whatever from one place, it might be not nearly as good as from another source. So it's really worth it to spend a little extra money getting good spices. Penzies, you know, P-E-N-Z-E-Y, sell spices online. We sell spices. Lots of other people do. Get good quality spices. It's not just a question of whether they're fresh. It's what you're starting with. And get them in small amounts. In small amounts. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's just sometimes if you read about a recipe and you think, oh, I could make that, uh, you know, that caraway is two years old. I wonder whether if you had whole seeds or whole beans or just grinding them up on the spot. Yes. Excellent point. You're much better off buying whole as much as possible. A lot of people in the world uh, actually will make their own spice mix every month, but you could keep whole cumin or coriander, and when you want to use right. it, just toast it. That is, put it in a skillet. And grind it up in a Until it starts grinder. to smell toasty. And grind it up in a little coffee grinder you keep for that purpose. You should toast it before you grind yeah. it. If you toast it before you grind it, it'll help, yeah. I mean, I, I enjoy using a mortar and pestle kind of fun to do. But. Mortar and pestle is great. That's better. You get a better result than a coffee grinder. But, yeah, toast them for a couple minutes till they're toasty smelling and then put them in a mortar and pestle. Is that what they do to make the powders? Yeah. Toast them a little bit first? Yeah, they do. And um, okay. it'll enhance. I mean, your cooking will go from, you know, good to great pretty quickly if you just have freshly ground spices. Yeah. Peter, don't save your money on spices. <laughs> put out that right. 30, 40 bucks uh, every year and your, uh, your cooking will be much better. So yes. take care. Okay. Thanks, right. Peter. Thanks, Thanks for okay. calling. Thank you very much. Yeah. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Leah. I'm calling from Lexington. How are you? Lexington, Massachusetts. Our, yes. our neck of the woods. How can we help you today? So I am calling about a key lime pie that I made. And I have the unfortunate situation that I have to be both gluten and dairy-free. The problem happened when I tried to modify the key lime filling. I used a sweetened condensed coconut milk rather than sweetened condensed milk. And what happened was it was kind of a disaster. You said a condensed coconut milk. Right. Does it have the texture that is extremely thick texture of condensed milk? It does. Could you also tell us what else is in the recipe? Sure. So what you do first is you take egg yolk, beat that with key lime juice, the lime zest, and the sweetened condensed coconut milk. You sort of beat that until it's somewhat frothy. And then you put that aside, and then I frothed up some egg whites so they held a little bit of a peak. And then you fold that in, and then you pour it into the pre-baked crust and bake it for about 15 minutes. 
And the only thing that was different with your recipe than the original was that you used sweetened condensed coconut milk instead of sweetened condensed milk. That's right. Well, coconut milk is not milk. <laughs> so from a chemistry point of view... <laughs> it's a it's different good, ballgame. Yeah, in terms of creating a custard-like emulsion or whatever... Well, when you add eggs to something, they'll set it up. That'll help, but my guess is, my guess is condensed evaporated coconut milk. And Maybe condensed she evaporated the egg different. yolks. That would help. That would help. Another thought is when you beat the egg whites, if you add some sugar to them, it really helps to fold them better into the base mixture. So if they're really stiff, they're almost impossible to fold into right. anything. I think you could get away with about quarter cup of sugar, three tablespoons of sugar. But wait a minute. Now, I've made a recipe for key lime pie. I don't remember whipped egg whites being folded into the base. It's just lightning. If you're worried about texture here, I don't remember that's part of a typical key lime pie. Sarah's right that if you add a couple tablespoons of sugar, it makes it more hygroscopic. It's creamy. It's very hard to overbeat. And Sarah would also say, take about a third of the whites and mix them into the base and then fold, fold the in rest the rest. In. Yeah. But I think your problem is coconut milk and milk are just totally different products. Are you baking this after you fill the shell or not? Yes. Here's what I would do. I would do a gelatin-based filling. I wouldn't bake it and I wouldn't use eggs. Thicken it okay. with gelatin. That's what I would do. And that is a style of, of that pie, gelatin-based thickener. And if you're going to use coconut milk, I think that's the safest route. Yeah. And just substitute coconut milk for the other milk. And I think that would be the, the go-to simplest thing to do. You can't use eggs, though, because they're not cooked. Right. Leah, can we ask you to get back to yes, us and we, let us know how it goes? We do want to hear about it. Excellent. I will experiment, and I'll let you know all of my various experiments. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Thank you. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a question or if you just want to tell us what you think, please give us a ring. 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Carolyn from Atlanta. Hi, Carolyn from Atlanta. How can we help you today? Well, I had a question. Um, I've got a friend who has a really, really bad sense of smell, and I think it's contributes to his bad eating habits as far as going for salty and fatty fast food. But I was just wondering is, you know, since a lot of people say that the sense of smell and taste are so closely related, is there any way for somebody to have their sense of smell improved? Oh, boy, I think that's a question for a doctor. I think the answer is no, at least as far as we know. But I think the question is how to enhance the flavor of foods so that they can enjoy food more. Right. It sounds like they're yeah. reaching mm-hmm. for a lot of sugar and salt because that's all they can right. taste. And there's other mm-hmm. ingredients, you know, like the kind of things that we would recommend to somebody on a low-salt diet, like acid, you know, citrus or chilies. One thing I've found, and I've given this advice a lot, is if you're making a super stew or something like that, something you can adjust right before serving. There are mm-hmm. things you can add in the last 30 seconds that will significantly up the ante. People don't mm-hmm. add enough salt. I mean, the difference between the right amount of salt and the wrong amount is the difference between good flavor and no flavor. Garlic at the end or grated ginger at the end, a little vinegar is really good. Lemon juice. Tons of fresh herbs or lemon juice at the end is really good. Mm-hmm. And the best tip is to take some oil, just uh, grapeseed oil or sunflower oil, whatever you want, and take like a half a teaspoon of a very strong spice 
like a pepper of some kind, for example, or even cumin, mm-hmm. and infuse the oil for two or three minutes with the spice on top of the stove over medium-low heat. Once you can smell it, you can drizzle that oil on top of the food before serving. Excellent. And you could do that on a steak or on mashed potato. You could do it on anything, vegetables, soups too. So a little thing added at the end, especially an infused oil, which is two minutes of work, you can really do a great Point job. Something up. Well, I think we've said Co- all we probably can. <laughs> Some of us have said <laughs> yeah. quite a lot. Some of us have overstayed really their welcome. Really, on and on and on. Car- Carolyn, I'll let you go. Thanks <laughs> yes. for calling. Okay. Thank you. All right. Enjoy your show. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I got excited. I know. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Josh from Foxborough, Massachusetts. What can we do for you? Yes, so my question was actually um, regarding pasta and the water that you use for cooking and uh, making sauces from it. Mm -hmm. Kind of something I like to use. I know that water has a lot of starch that can help make a good, like, thick, creamy sauce. But I was wondering if that starch content varies by different types of pasta. I know sometimes I like to use whole wheat or gluten-free how much water are you using to cook, let's say, a pound of pasta? Are you reducing the water amount to get more starch as a percentage in the liquid? That's actually a good point. I've never really done that. I kind of just eyeball the water to well, be enough. Well, I, I interviewed a guy, French guy cooks, that has this YouTube channel. And he does a cacio e pepe recipe, which, as you know, is just cheese, a little black bit pepper. of pasta water, and black pepper. And it's a very hard recipe to do to get the liquid to thicken, but not sort of coagulate. He cooks the pasta in a skillet with very little water, like water to cover almost. And that way there's a huge amount of starch in the water. Then he separately takes the pasta out and reduces that liquid down and then uses that as the base. So it's not just a function of the kind of pasta, it's the function of how much water you're using. So in general, if you use a lot less water than you think you need, that will give you a higher percentage of starch. The other solution is, we did this with our cacio e pepe, is separate from cooking the pasta, we cook some water. He did some water with cornstarch and made a slurry with grated cheese. You don't have to use the cheese, but the point is we created a cornstarch slurry and put that in with the pasta in the skillet to finish with some of the pasta water. So you took some water like cold water with the cornstarch whisked together. Like a cup and together. a half of water, some cornstarch. We had some grated cheese. Yeah, I guess uh, it depends on how like much. Like two liquid. teaspoons of cornstarch. And whisked it really well. Whisked it, got And then it added it to the hot liquid. And then when you finish cooking the pasta, you put it in a skillet. We added some of the cooking water and some of that water, and then you have a nice slurry. You can control it. Yeah. I mean, I would think, awesome. Josh, this is something you're going to have to play around with depending on what kind of pasta you, you use. With most gluten-free, I imagine it's kind of like rice pasta Right, would be... I think you just need to experiment. Well, if you just cook the pasta in much less water than you think you need, that'll solve the problem. That too. Less water is definitely a great idea. I don't know why I've actually never thought of that. Well, because we've all been taught, you know, the old Italian way, a huge pot of boiling salted water. But you know why? To get rid of the starch to begin with. I was in a hill town in in Italy 20 years ago watching them cook pasta. And I went, I said, you know, there's like two gallons of water in this thing. They cook 500 portions of pasta in that water. So over time, the starch content of water is extremely high. Interesting. It's not like they make one pound of pasta. They're right. making hundreds of pounds. Right. But so, even so, all the Italian cookbook authors, you know, of yesteryear would say a huge pot of water. So that's why you're doing it, Josh. But, you know, sometimes we break rules. And go to YouTube and look up, I think, French guy cooking. 
and look up his cacio e pepe recipe. Yeah. It's worth looking at. That sounds like it's fun. pretty good. Me too. I'm going to do it. Josh, oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I will. Yeah. Okay, give it a shot. Awesome. Well, thank you, guys. Yeah. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, my interview with Matt Goulding, author of Grape Olive Pig, Deep Travels Through Spain's Food Culture. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today is my interview with Matt Goulding. He's a co-founder of Roads and Kingdoms, also the author of Grape Olive Pig, Deep Travels Through Spain's Food Culture. Matt Goulding, welcome to Milk Street. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Could you just set the book up for us? You started out exploring Spain as a student. You came back to study you uh, were trying to go to Italy, got sidetracked. So, w- w- what's your history with Spain? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of the at least the beginning of it, the short version of it. But I I came back in 2010. I was kind of burnt out from living in New York and was looking to find a quiet corner of Italy to write a book in, fall in love with an Italian. You know, a very original idea for a young American writer. But I uh, I stopped over in Barcelona and I met a lovely young Catalan woman who who kept me where I was. So I never actually left Barcelona and I've been there ever since. Uh, and if you could tell the story about, you, you had this, um, well, it wasn't unrequited, but you, you had a love affair with her that was one-way street for some time. It, it really uh, was. And you recount in the book sort of the moment when the two of you actually got together. What, what was that moment? Well, you know, it, it was exactly like you said. It was, I think, unrequited is probably the appropriate word. We went back and forth for quite some time and I, I came back 
and uh, had brought a couple of white truffles from Italy over with me and tried everything I possibly could to kind of convince this young woman that I was serious about her and about living in Spain and still wasn't quite enough. And so it wasn't actually until uh, Thanksgiving night where I had invited a bunch of bunch of European friends over. I cooked a turkey and at the end of the night everyone had kind of wandered home and she came back and helped me with the dishes. I guess if someone shows up, I mean, it, really, it really was. If someone shows up at two in the morning to help you with the dishes, I, it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, that's, that's pretty serious, right? That seems like love, and it certainly yeah. did at the time. And here we are, eight years later, still married, very happy. So I think it, I think it worked out. So you've spent a lot of time in Italy and Spain, and, and Italy obviously is very good at self marketing, right? Uh, but but you say something very. Smart. You say Spain does not sell itself well. That's the expression. So how would you, silly question, how would you compare uh, the sort of the food world, the food experience in Spain versus Italy, if, if that's something you could actually do? No, it's not a silly question at all. I mean, it's something that's, that's constantly, I think, on the minds of, of the Spaniards in particular, because they feel like they've been overlooked internationally. Sort of the brand Spain has never been nearly as strong as brand Italy. And what we're talking about here is not, you know, the splashy Michelin-starred restaurant. Spain is very well known for that now. But we're talking more about the core ingredients that make up its Mediterranean palate. So we're talking about cured meat products, we're talking about olive oils, talking about cheeses and vegetables, fish. From that standpoint, Spain is every bit the culinary powerhouse that Italy or France is. Um, and I would argue in, in most of those instances, or at least a number of them, quite a bit better. I mean... I don't know about you, but for me, I don't think there's any better protein expression in the world than that of a acorn-fed jamón iberico. Right. And, then, and that ham, uh, I didn't realize this, is actually hung for three or four years. Is that right? They can take it all the way up to five for some of these, some of these fattier pigs that have the meatier hind legs. I mean, so we're talking about serious dedication and extraordinary craftsmanship. And, and above all, the pigs themselves are just treated really well, they live really well, um, and they finish their last, you know, three or four months eating nothing but acorns. And so that gives them this extraordinary marbling, and the fat itself is is really sweet, a really sort of deep-flavored fat that gives jamón iberico that really special, really special flavor, which, you know, I always say to the, to the ire of Italians, but you eat a, a piece of jamón iberico and prosciutto tastes like bologna next to it. I can't imagine that would upset the Italians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't they don't seem to mind at all. No, I mean, if I as I met a prosciutto baron in Emilia Romagna in Bologna when I was working on a book over there, and his argument to me was, you know what, prosciutto is much better than jamón iberico. Jamón iberico is it's too hammy, it's too intense. And you're saying to me, you're you're faulting a product for tasting too much like itself. That's where you have to go to if you want to try to compare yourself to a product that good. Uh, you went to El Bulli once, uh, the number one restaurant in the world while it was still around. Uh, could you t- tell us a little bit about that? I read in your book, it started, I can't believe this, it started as a roadside grill and miniature golf course. Is that right? <laughs> that's right. And that's how it was for 20 or 30 years. It was owned by uh, a German family who had started a miniature golf course in that area, and they wanted to feed the beachgoers. And so they had they did hot dogs and and hamburgers and a lot of very casual kind of coastal food. And 
you know, it wasn't until uh, a French chef came along and kind of began to elevate it into a more serious restaurant. And then finally, of course, a young Ferran Adria showed up there when he was about 20 years old. Not really quite sure what he was doing in the kitchen, but immediately began to set out to redefine the shape of modernist cuisine entirely. And you have a great quote from him. He said, I'm not in the business of giving pleasure. I'm in the business of producing emotion. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's always been something that I find really challenging about sort of the avant-garde movement of, of the upper echelons of Spanish cuisine, which is to say deliciousness isn't always at the forefront of the chef's quest. Now, Fran would dispute that and say, well, I always cared about, you know, I always start with things that are absolutely delicious first and foremost. But, you know, ultimately, I think that what he did and what many people continue to do in that country is really look for ways to redefine the structure, the impact, the delivery system of food, deconstructing dishes and reconstructing them in ways that is not just really interesting, but it's intellectually challenging. You know, sitting through a three and a half or four hour, 45 course meal at El Bui, yeah, you're full at the end of it, but more than anything, your brain hurts. Well, could you give me an example of two things? Uh, something you ate at El Bui, which is not necessarily the thing you like the most to taste, but the most challenging, and then give us the opposite, a dish that you just still remember today. I mean, they do, they do these sequences, you know, they built, Ferran loved to build meals around four, three or four course sequences, which we'd focus on a single ingredient. And it would basically be little mini essays or odes to that ingredient. And so, you know, there was um, a heavy game sequence where I think it was partridge and pigeon. But in your, you know, you eat like a ravioli with its innards, drank with a glass of its blood, <laughs> Um, followed by a parfait made with another offcut of it. And, you know, in individual plates, they are, I think they're, they're tasty. They're, in some cases, delicious. But together, this four or five-part sequence is, is really sort of challenging you to sort of recognize the, the diversity and the potential of a single ingredient. On the other side of just sort of pure pleasure. There was a, a dish I think about all the time still, and it was basically, it was an olive oil chip. They used, I think, maltodextrin to solidify olive oil into basically a, a sort of a, a crystalline shard. It looked like a, uh, looks basically like a piece of glass. Right. And inside of these two thin pieces of olive oil glass, there was the greatest first press olive oil that you've ever tasted with a few big crystals of coarse salt. And you just crunch through this thing and you know the the hair on my arm stands up to this day as I'm describing this to you because it recalls so much emotion that I felt the first time and the only time that I ever had that dish I was gonna say yeah it, it makes my lentil rice fried onion supper seem a little pedestrian uh, so but but you know we each do what we can do in the kitchen uh you're um well the term travel writer is probably a bit anemic to describe what you do because you, you really live it. But you must be challenged all the time. On one hand, wanting to give your reader the inside scoop and talk about amazing places you went. On the other hand, having zero interest in letting people know about where some of these places are because it's the classic case of ruining a place through publicity or 
ruining a place for you so you can uh, you won't be able to go back. I assume you do withhold occasionally uh, some of the your favorite places, right? <laughs> I mean, come on, be honest. Now. Um, more now than ever. You know, Barcelona is now the third most visited city in all of Europe. There are very few untouched corners of that city, in particular in the restaurant world. And so, of course, you go to the places that you've learned to love and suddenly the secrets got out and you have to stand in line behind a world of tourists who are going to be there for 24 hours. And so, you know, along the way, more than ever, you realize that having a handful of those places makes your experience as a local citizen there much more livable. In fact, I wrote an essay uh, last year at some point. It was sort of my my life in Spain told through 10 dishes. And the first nine were dishes that, you know, I, I identified. I named the restaurant and their importance. It was sort of an essay put together bite by bite. And then the 10th dish were some classic croquetas and some Spanish-style meatballs from a very humble little vermuteria, sort of a classic little Spanish bar that I left unnamed. And sure enough, you put it out there and someone saw what I thought was a very sort of clever and hidden image that didn't reveal the place. And within like 20 minutes of it being out on Twitter, everybody in Spain had identified (laughs) it and it was blasted out the name of this place. And now you go there and you can't, you know, you got to fight with people to get in the door. So, so you got a lot of really nice thank you notes from <laughs> all the locals in town. Yeah, th- tons. People Matt, love. Thank it. you people so much. Really appreciate. It. Um, <laughs> and, and let's talk about paella simply because we have to. Uh, Jose Andres, I think you spent some time with him, told me long time ago that the real paella is very thin. It's it's a very thin layer of rice. It's all about the crust at the bottom. Right. Is, is that a fair explanation? That's exactly right. Um, Jose Jose knows well. I've eaten a lot of rice with him over the years, and he's absolutely right. The, the thinner the paella, the better. A single layer of rice or two layers of rice is what you're looking for that allows it to absorb all of that stock, also to get that nice socarrat, which is that crusty bart on the bottom of the pan. Um, and in terms of seafood versus, you know, uh, versus meat, the traditional one, the very traditional paella from, from Valencia, the first one is, is made with, with chicken and rabbit and snails. That's kind of the trinity there. But the thing about paella is, you know, it's, it's obviously the national dish of Spain and you see it everywhere. But really what Spain is great at is a, this wide variety of Spanish rice dishes, which I think is one of the great undiscovered culinary treasures of the country, if not the world. You have these things like soupy rices they are called arroz caldoso or arroz meloso, which is sort of a Spanish version of risotto, which is sort of the midpoint between the dry paella rice and the soupy lobster and crab and shrimp rices they serve there. The point being is that they are extraordinarily good at, at making these deeply flavored, hugely satisfying rice dishes. And that's, that's what people should be looking for when they travel over to Spain. There was a quote, a little saying, I sort of stood out for me. Uh, in your book, a kitchen without rice is like a pretty girl with one eye. Um, that kind of stopped me. I mean, I didn't really expect the last part of that. Are there other <laughs> expressions you've come across uh, in Spain that are, are sort of like that or a little odd and uh, unexpected? The Spaniards have um, more of these sort of idiomatic expressions than any culture that I've ever heard. And there's new ones trotted out all the time. It's like... Um, just thinking offhand right now, like when I talk about doing something and leaving something out, my wife would be like, that's like a, 
Es como un huevo sin sal. It's like an egg without salt. Or como un beso sin bigote. It's like a kiss without a mustache. You're like, wait, what does this mean? <laughs> like being kissed by somebody without a mustache, and that's the bad thing? There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of food baked into the colloquialisms of Spain. And uh, this is a, a bit of a, of a more intense expression, but I'll give it to you in Spanish. It's me cago en la leche. It's a kind of almost like a, it's almost a swear word saying like, damn it. But what it really means is like, I will, I will go to the bathroom in your milk. <laughs> which <laughs> which is one of the very most common expressions in Spain. So common that when I actually translated it from my wife, she's like, I never really thought about it like that. Yeah, that is really weird, huh? So, so what does that tell you about the Spanish or the Spanish culture? Because obviously it's a little different than uh, how you grew up. Does it, does it make you fall in love with them even more because they, uh, they view life through sort of a different lens? Entirely. I mean, people who, who constantly understand life through the vessel of food are the people who I want to be near. A culture that is as dedicated to eating well, drinking well, spending time and rallying around the table. I mean, you can have a lunch or a dinner that lasts for four or five hours at your friend's house. I'm not just talking about elaborate feasts at Michelin-starred restaurants, but a Saturday with your buddies could mean, you know, cooking a couple of different rices and sitting at the table for four hours. And, like, that's the culture that I want to be a part of. Well, me too. <laughs> for all of our listeners, your job is to enjoy it for us. Come on over, Chris. There's plenty of room. <laughs> Done. Check that one off. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. So great talking to you. Thanks for having me on. That was Matt Goulding. His book is called Grape Olive Pig, Deep Travels Through Spain's Food Culture. A kiss without a mustache is like an egg without salt, says something about the Spanish, but I'm not quite sure what that might be. Other kissing quotes that make a little more sense are, "'Tis a secret told to the mouth instead of the ear." Or, kissing is the means of getting two people so close together they cannot see anything wrong with each other. But the best lines about kissing were spoken by Ingrid Bergman in For Whom the Bell Tolls. I don't know how to kiss, or I would kiss you. Where do the noses go? But any discussion of kissing has to end with these lyrics from Casablanca. You must remember this, a kiss is still a kiss as time goes by. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, potato gnocchi. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, I was in Paris recently. Don't say anything. Uh, <laughs> we were doing a story on the new Paris because about ten, up until 10 years ago, a lot of Parisian restaurants run by Parisian chefs were a little behind the times. But that's not true now. Now things have really changed. And there's a, a place called Robert, which is near the canal, the 10th or 11th, and one of the most interesting things is this guy, the cook there, is cooking pasta, <laughs> Italian food. And the, one of the simplest dishes he made was gnocchi, which, of course, we've all had. But it was really astounding. It was incredibly light. It was delicious. So I came back the next day, and he gave me a lesson. And uh, he does it quite differently than what I had known. 
So we brought the recipe back here, and you guys uh, perfected it for milk straight. So, so what were the keys about this gnocchi? So there are four key things to follow when you're making this recipe. Potato gnocchi is a great recipe to have because it's pasta you can make at home without any special equipment. Uh, also, it doesn't have that many ingredients. But what you do need to do is kind of follow the rules. And there are sort of four key things you want to make sure you're doing. The first is using the right potato. So this is a russet potato. It's higher in starch content than, say, a Yukon gold. Uh, so it's going to be drier. And really dry potatoes are what is going to make that really cloud-like texture that you like so much. So to further that, point number two is to really dry out the potatoes. So we boil them and then we put them in a pot uh, and cook them over the heat for a few minutes just to dry them out a little bit. Uh, you'll see there's a film on the bottom of the pan. That's how you know when they're dry. Then let them cool to room temperature before you continue making the dough. I, I think he did it. He boiled them and then put them in an oven, but it's the same thing. Same thing. Right. It takes a little bit of a little bit less time to do it on the stovetop. Uh, we take our potatoes all the way through and then finish them there. So the third thing here, and that was a super important point that he brought up, which was to weigh the potatoes. So after your potatoes are cooked, instead of scooping out a volume measurement, you actually want to weigh them because the proportion of ingredients of uh, potato to flour to egg was really critical to get that cloudy texture. You want to rice the potatoes when you mash them rather than using a potato masher that makes them kind of dense. So the fourth thing here is sort of our own Milk Street secret. Uh, and this is kind of a fail-safe for the home cook. So if you didn't weigh your ingredients like we told you to, or if your weights are a little bit off, this will keep it nice and light. And that's adding a half a teaspoon of baking powder. So that's a leavener that's going to really lighten it uh, and kind of just make sure that you're getting that texture that we're looking for here. Otherwise known as a cheat in the world of recipe like, development. I prefer to call it a secret or a tip. Okay, that's, that's right. But yes. And then you shape them the usual way? or Shape them. You can shape them using a, a board if you have one or a fork works just as well. You make a well. log. Exactly. And cut them, cut them pieces into and little pieces them. and shape them on your, the back uh, tines of a fork. Just as easy as using a board. Um, the key here is though, after you boil the pasta, you want to let it sit for about 15 minutes. That's going to firm up the little potato dumplings so that when you sauce it, the sauce is going to coat the outside rather than kind of get into the inside. It's kind of the opposite of making other pasta. Uh, so you want to just make sure that it stays on the outside because otherwise you're going to make that pasta kind of dense. When he made them for me, I ate them in about 30 seconds, but that's <laughs> because I wasn't <laughs> going to wait the 15 minutes. So, so these are relatively easy to make at home, right? Very easy to make at home, surprisingly. Lynn, thank you. So gnocchi you can make at home from a recipe from a hot Paris restaurant. It's so on Milk Street to do hot stuff. Paris Italian. Paris Italian. Thank you very much. You can get this recipe for potato gnocchi at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt shares his tips for better fried chicken. That's coming up in just a moment. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's cooking tip. So here's a common problem in the kitchen. If you have a big pot of hot super stew and you need to cool it down before putting it in the fridge, how do you do that quickly? Well, here's our favorite technique at Milk Street. Fill a large plastic bottle three-quarters full of water and freeze it. 
When you're ready to cool down your super stew, place the frozen bottle, with the cap screwed on of course, into the liquid while it sits on the counter. Pretty quickly it'll cool down and then you can put it right into the fridge. For more culinary tips, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. Next up, it's food science writer J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Kenji, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. How have you been spending your time lately? I assume you've been uh, doing something in the world of science and food. <laughs> um, I've recently actually I've been working on uh, the fried chicken for my restaurant. So uh, a lot of frying and a lot of breading and a lot of tests. <laughs> well, you and I in our past have done quite a lot of fried chicken testing. Is there mm-hmm. something new in the world of fried chicken? Well, so we're using a couple techniques here that I think are interesting. Um, the first one is double frying. So basically like cooking the chicken all the way through one day, chilling mm-hmm. it, and then refrying it the second day. And what happens is that the first time you fry the chicken, the skin and the crust, uh, the breading are sort of all dehydrating, browning, and getting crispy. There's still a sort of a ton of moisture in that layer right by where the skin is, sort of underneath the main part of the breading, but between the breading and the flesh. Like if you have freshly fried chicken, there's a little layer of hmm. breading that is usually still a little bit moist. Yeah. Um, chicken sort of sets after the first fry. It can start to get soggy pretty fast. So what happens with the double frying is that, you know, you dehydrate it, get it crispy. Um, and then as it sits overnight, that little layer of moisture that was still trapped in there kind of migrates and spreads out around the breading. So your breading ends up very soggy, but then when you refry it, you end up driving even more moisture off. So your breading comes out kind of extra crispy while the chicken inside stays nice and juicy. Um, And then we're also using a little trick, which I'm sure you remember, where we take some of the buttermilk mixture from the the brine and uh, sort of work it into the dredging with our fingertips to make it sort of clumpy before you even add the chicken to it so that you get a lot more surface texture. Right. I, I do remember that. Yeah. Now, I have a question. I I remember someone telling me that when you double fry French fries, Mm -hmm. it's the cooling off period where the oil is absorbed. And if you only single fry French fries, like in the Robichon method, which you start in room temperature oil, there's less oil absorbed. Right. Does this double frying method mean there's more oil absorbed or is chicken and French fries just two totally different things? Well, you know, when, when you're, so when you're frying foods and you put food into the fryer and you see bubbles coming out, those bubbles are water vapor. Right. And essentially any space where there used to be water in the food, that's a new area where oil can move in. So generally, yes, there is a correlation between the amount of oil in a food and how crisply it has been fried. Um, Yeah, there's this misconception that if something is very crispy, it's not absorbing much oil, which is actually incorrect. You know, when you fry foods properly, they don't taste greasy, but it's because the feeling of greasiness that you get in your mouth is not just oil on its own, but it's sort of a combination of oil and moisture and kind of slick breading and all all these things combined end up feeling greasy in your mouth. But if you have something that's perfectly crisply fried, even if there's a lot of oil in it, it's not going to taste greasy because there's nothing, there's no like water in that mixture to really sort of give you that. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so, you know, I I think if you look at um, research papers, I mean, a ton of research has been done on this and pretty much across the board, like the higher temperature you fry something at and the more uh, water you drive off, the more oil it's going to absorb in the end, even if it doesn't necessarily taste greasy. So this is all about the perception of crispiness in fried chicken, and you're saying by diminishing the amount of water or liquid on the surface, which comes Mm -hmm. out overnight, you drive that off and you get a much crispier chicken skin or coating, which gives you the impression of obviously a much better chicken and a less oily product. Exactly. So if you want to do this at home, could you just give us a a quick run-through? So honestly, I mean, the double frying technique, it'll work with basically any fried chicken recipe. In fact, 
I have a theory that in almost any city in the world, if there is a Popeye's there, then Popeye's serves the best fried chicken in that city. Right. Anyhow, you can take leftover fried chicken, any recipe you want, or you can go to Popeye's, KFC, wherever. Get your fried chicken wherever. Let it sit in your fridge overnight, and then the second day, heat up oil to around 350 degrees. Um, I use peanut oil and just drop it in there and let it fry for about two and a half minutes or so, turning huh. it a couple times, and it'll be better than it was the first day. Huh. Just earlier this week, we had some takeout um, fried calamari. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, if it works with chicken, maybe we can try it here. So I tried the next day also double frying the leftover fried calamari. And what I did was I actually ended up incorporating it into like a Chinese style salt and pepper, you know, stir fried garlic and chilies mm -hmm. um, and scallions and white pepper and salt. So basically just took that leftover fried calamari, refried it in peanut oil. And just like the chicken, it comes out sort of extra crispy and huh. even better the next day. That's a great tip. It actually even works on the radio. You don't have to see it. Yeah. So <laughs> Kenji, thanks very much. The second day, refry for two or three minutes at 350, and it comes out better than it was initially. Kenji, thank you. You're welcome. That was Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the chief culinary advisor for Serious Eats, also author of the book, The Food Lab. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download Milk Street Radio and Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show. That way you'll get every episode downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Mill Street, please visit us at 177millstreet.com, and there you can find each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch the new season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street, Tuesday nights. We're also on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177millstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugars. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Faker. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubeup Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.